mercy and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I noticed during that second to last verse of the hymn, I don't know if anyone else noticed as we were singing, all the soul's dark night is past, morning breaks in joy at last. The clouds parted and the sun started shining in the windows. Our lesson today is about those transition moments in our lives between the darkness of the soul and the joy of heaven. And we live through these week by week, month by month, year by year. It's not that the Christian's life at one moment is all unbelief, sorrow, and not knowing the Lord, and then you believe and suddenly it's all happiness, joy, and eternal bliss. No, these are the same disciples who now have the third time Jesus has appeared to them as the risen Lord. And yet in the midst of even this third event, they're still experiencing struggle, disappointment on an earthly level. They didn't catch any fish. There's a psalm where David says, there is one thing I have asked from the Lord. One thing. What do you think it is? If you had to ask yourself that question and you said, there is one thing I desire from the Lord, just one, you can only get one, what would it be? What would you ask for? Sometimes a pastor has to pause to let people think. And there are moments in our lives where God pauses so we can think. He pauses what's going on in our daily routines and suddenly something unexpected happened. He pauses the abundance that he's provided or just the daily provision that he's provided. He pauses the ordinary. There is one thing I have desired of the Lord and that I will seek, David says, He says, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To be with God. Being in the presence of the resurrected Lord Jesus is the one and only thing that ultimately matters. It's really the only thing we're seeking as Christians, even though in the midst of our lives there's many different ways we seek it. It is the one thing we're seeking, to be in the presence of the risen Jesus. And so in our sermon today, we will see how the disciples live through this in these experiences first of waiting for the risen Lord, then of receiving his abundant grace, and then finally in the greatest gift of ultimately being in his presence. So as we live out our daily lives, we're setting goals all the time. What are the goals that you have right now? Maybe you have goals for this week to get the house clean. Or maybe you have goals to uh, take a trip, a vacation coming up. Maybe you have saving goals, goals to pay off debt or bills. 
Maybe your goal is prayer this week. That would be a good one. What are your goals in life? And they can be bigger than just this week, of course, different phases of life. We have a couple of students who are away on a camping trip right now, and it's part of their confirmation. We have uh, two students who are going to get confirmed next Sunday. They have a goal, going up to ILC. Later on in life, you have other goals of graduating college and getting a career, and maybe you're in that age where you're seeking a career, maybe not even going to college, just trying to make a living, get yourself settled. And then you move on from that. You have kids. You move on from that. You see your kids grow up and they go on to their goals. You retire. You face health problems. You face the final goal of reaching heaven. In all of this, we have goals, but if our goals do not draw us back to the Lord Jesus and being in his presence, they really aren't worth much. Business goals, career goals, marriage goals, money goals, all of these things can seep into our lives simply as idols, as things that we think are really, really important today, but are they important to God in the same way? One goal I have when I go out fishing, I know, is pretty simple. So anytime someone comes back from fishing, I just heard someone say this the other day. What would you do this week? I went fishing. So what do you ask them? Did you catch anything? anything? Right? Because you would assume the number one goal of fishing, at least I used to think this, the number one goal of fishing was to catch a fish. I've actually learned there are some people who that's not their goal. Their goal is just to get away, just to have some quiet, just to have some peace. But ultimately, you ask them, did you catch a fish? Well, up to this point, the disciples were out fishing all night, and they couldn't tell you they caught a fish. All that time spent, no sleep, just wanted to eat breakfast. Maybe they're trying to get a little bit of traveling money. They didn't catch anything. I had this experience once going out with a friend of mine fishing when I was in college. And he was the best fisherman I know. Outdoorsman to the nth degree of, you could imagine somebody in Wisconsin would be hunting, fishing, and so on. And he takes me out to his favorite spot. And I'm not very experienced at fishing, but I do know you take somebody to your favorite spot. That's a pretty good privilege. and, And you ought to catch something. And we were out there all afternoon into the evening and nothing. And he just was dumbfounded. He said, I don't understand it. I come out here every, all the time and I always catch fish. But for something about bringing along David Pfeiffer, and uh, it didn't work. Jesus had to teach the disciples that there are those moments where the things you normally do don't work anymore. The things you're used to seeking after don't need to be your focus anymore. The stuff you're used to just having in your life as comforts, creature comforts, are taken away. You're out fishing all night. You don't catch anything because Jesus wants you to wait. He wants you to wait until he tells you what matters. And so fishing turns into fasting. Instead of catching an abundant amount of fish, 
we need to have other goals. Goals of fasting. Times where we wait. It's important for us to wait. And how many times the scriptures talk about the importance of waiting? For instance, Jeremiah talked about the destruction of his city and the temple and his experience. In the book of Lamentations, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So in fasting, the Lord teaches us there are times when we just give stuff up, when we have to go through an experience of having less. What's the goal of fasting then? Even if it's just a spiritual exercise during Lent and you fast by not eating, which Jesus says you can do, what would the goal be of fasting? In Isaiah chapter 58, Isaiah talks about the two different, pro, the two different ways of fasting. The people were fasting as a religious exercise, but God said, in all of your fasting, you just keep quarreling and fighting. You're doing your own fast, but you never humble yourself before me. So he rebukes their fast because they're not really waiting for the Lord. They're trying to provoke the Lord to do something. So coming to church, praying, how you experience trials is not a time to try to demand the Lord do something or come to church so he will improve things in your life. Sometimes he does the opposite. Instead, Isaiah says, uh, the Lord says, is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressor go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless and poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. So having been out there all night, not catching anything, waiting for their goal to be realized, the Lord wants us to realize that these times are times when he wants to teach us something. Something about his abundance, something about his grace, something about that we've been taking for granted. He says, don't just fast by not eating your bread, but give your bread to the hungry. I was listening to the story of Dallas Jenkins, who is the creator of a TV series called The Chosen. Some of you have probably watched The Chosen. It's about the life of Jesus set in uh, the days of the disciples going through the stories of the Bible with a little bit of a modern dialogue put to it. And in the story of The Chosen, Dallas Jenkins started out really with nothing but one episode. It's now up to three seasons. And it started out with one episode that was crowdfunded. So crowdfunded effort is where basically you have no money 
and you ask people's donations in order to fund something that you're going to do. He tells the story of how he got it started on The Chosen, which is that he was a Christian movie director and producer, and he was trying to get into Hollywood. And so he had this film that he had created, and he didn't expect to be noticed at all, but there were some people in Hollywood that took notice of him and decided that they wanted to sponsor his movie. And so he had these people from Hollywood getting involved and supporting his first film, and this was supposed to be his big breakthrough. And it went into movie theaters, you guess what it did? It flopped. It was a failure. So Hollywood executives said, well, there's really no point in continuing this relationship, and so they backed out, and he was out of a job. So everything that he thought was going to happen and the goodness that the Lord was going to do in his life turned out to just be nothing. It was after this a time of fasting and waiting and trial that his wife was praying. And she said as she was praying, she kept remembering the feeding of the 5,000 story, where Jesus provides food for the abundance of 5,000 people from just five loaves and two fish. And she said there was this phrase running through her head, I do impossible math. Feeding of 5,000 and I do impossible math. And she told her husband this, and they, they said they didn't really believe in the sense of the Lord just giving you audible messages, but there was definitely an impression in this that mattered to them. And so they continued on praying, waiting on the Lord. And then one day he got a message from a friend of his who he didn't really even know anymore, and it was just out of the blue, he said, all you need to do is provide the loaves and the fishes, and God will take care of the rest. Two fish, five loaves, and God will take care of the rest. So he ended up, uh, after that, having an opportunity to do one episode. And a Christian organization contacted him, and they were going to produce this one episode. It was going to be crowdfunded. If you know anything about crowdfunding, it's next to impossible to survive, especially in the movie industry, with crowdfunding. He did this one episode of, it was about the shepherd at Christmas. And from that one episode, they raised enough money to do another episode. And then they kept raising money and were able to produce that whole first season. They had raised over $10 million for that first season. And now it's going on the third season. But the point I found interesting in Dallas Jenkins was he said he didn't care if it worked out or not. He said the point of all of it was not whether he was going to be great or not. He said if it was successful, praise the Lord. And if it was not, praise the Lord. Because in the end, his heart was set on whatever the Lord wants is what matters. Jesus calls to the disciples from shore. And he says, cast down your nets on the right side of the boat. And they cast their nets in, and they pull up a catch so big, a quantity of fish. And John is able to record the exact number of fish, 153 large fish. 
I do impossible math. God wants us to rely on him for his abundant, amazing grace. But he does his abundant, amazing grace when he wants and how he wants. Not based on us, not based on our performance, not based on our personalities or strength of faith. He does it his way when and how he will. And this miracle isn't really about the fish, is it? It's about the fish giver. As they come to shore, Jesus already has breakfast made. Jesus is already able to provide everything you need at any moment's notice. He's totally prepared for everything and every scenario you could go through. Peter gets this. Because Peter is not even interested in making sure they get every one of those 153 fish. You know, a shrewd businessman would know, don't lose even one of those fish. But Peter just jumps in the water and swims to shore. He doesn't care about gathering in the fish. He wants to get to Jesus. Because with Jesus is the source of the sign. The sign points us back to the source Jesus, the abundant giver of amazing grace. Bread and fish are symbols. When Jesus gave the 5,000, fed the 5,000 with bread and fish, afterwards he gave a sermon and he said, you hunger for the bread that perishes. I am the bread that will never waste away. He's the bread of life. And the symbol of the fish continues in Christianity even after the resurrection to be a symbol of discipleship and evangelism, going out into the world and gathering in more disciples. So where is that abundant catch that Jesus is calling you to in your life? How is he the source of your bread, the giver of fish, in the things you're going through? The significance of Jesus bringing us in and feeding the disciples is all about the resurrection. The term breakfast really means to break the fast. Whether you've been fasting for a day or just the night that you've slept through, breakfast is the first meal where we break the fast. And as the sun is dawning and light is shining on the shores of Galilee, Jesus is breaking the fast. How many times is the resurrection tied to food? Have you ever noticed that? How the resurrection is often tied to a meal and food? Jesus will eat a fish to prove that he's really real and risen. The disciples will travel with him on the road from, to Emmaus, and they'll sit down to a meal, and when he breaks bread, they recognize him. And in Acts chapter 2, it talks about the importance of meals after Pentecost. It says, day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. If I were to ask you, what do you think is the most common activity of early Christian worship? What was it that held it all together? It was a meal. 
Yes, there were prayers. Yes, there was the word. Yes, there was praising God. But there was the meal. And the Lord's Supper continues to be a sign of the resurrection. The significance of God both in the flesh, providing for our earthly needs, and God risen and ascended and reigning over all things to provide for all our spiritual needs. Jesus is the ultimate gift. And if there is one thing we could desire, one thing we could ask for and seek out, David says it's to be with the Lord. To be glad, to be simple of heart, to break bread together and remember the resurrection. It's such joy that you, even when you've been blessed with an abundant catch, can leave it all behind because you know there's something bigger in Jesus. This last week I was asking some people, not if there's one thing you wanted to ask the Lord, what would you seek? But I was asking it the other way around. If there's one thing the Lord wanted you to know, he wanted to say to you, what would it be? If the Lord just had one thing he was going to tell you today, and that's all he was limited to, what would he want you to know today? And do you know what this little girl said to me? A little girl. She says, to love him? I said, that's exactly right. Love is the one thing that connects us to God's presence The love that put him on the cross for your sins, the love that is risen from the dead in his resurrection, the love that he calls and invites you into to have breakfast with him. And that love can be celebrated whether you're fasting or feasting. There is one thing that we can desire from the Lord, and there's one thing he wants us to know, to love him and be with him forever. Amen.